As the summer of 63 approached, I knew my parents' little Florida bakery was failing. Dad went to work for a local contractor as a carpenter during the day, while continuing to bake bread, rolls, and pies in the pre-dawn hours. When all else failed, he could usually get a job, pounding nails, repairing plaster walls, or painting. But carpentering didn't pay much in Florida, anti-union state that it was and is. Reality set in. It was time to load up and move back to Illinois. Staying a few nights in Tuscola with this aunt and uncle, then that aunt and uncle. Thank God for stable relatives with spare bedrooms or couches. Then a cheap rental house once our used furniture arrived from Florida. Dad found a little work once again as a carpenter, and my brother and I started school in the fall of 63. Five foot one inch, 117 pound freshman, fourth string halfback for the mighty Tuscola Warriors. I wasn't the shortest nor lightest football player, but damn close. That honor belonged to my buddy, nicknamed Mouse, who towered in at 4'11 and 89 pounds. My budding, if inauspicious, football career ended three weeks later when my dad got a union job at Caterpillar Tractor Company, three hours north in Aurora, Illinois. Since I never played it down, never got in a game, but successfully warmed the bench, our move to Sandwich, Illinois, had little impact on the fortune of Coach Butkovich's bruisers. We moved to a drafty two-story old farm rent house a couple of miles north of Sandwich. Since I had to ride the bus with the farm kids to school, and with only one car, which my dad drove to his night shift on the assembly line, I didn't try to play football for the Sandwich Indians that freshman year. Other kids who lived on our rural county road did, but I didn't know any of them, so I couldn't ask for a ride home for practice. The last Friday before Thanksgiving, kids were beginning to anticipate the coming Thanksgiving weekend and Christmas break soon to follow. Shortly after lunch, the entire student body, all 400 or so kids, freshmen through seniors, were summoned to the gymnasium. I don't know what the politics of the area were at the time, but since Sandwich is in the same congressional district that sent the longest-serving, now-disgraced child molester, Republican Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert to Congress, I think it's safe to assume that it was a Republican area. As we settled into the hardwood bleachers, the portly, bespectacled principal made a strange announcement. I have something very important to say, and I don't want to hear any laughing or cheering, he said. His odd choice of words held our attention. What in the world is this about, I thought. President Kennedy has been assassinated in Dallas, Texas. This is a sad day in American history. School has been canceled for the remainder of the day. You are dismissed to go quietly to your lockers, came his solemn words. The news stunned us all. The look of grief on the principal's face clear to us all. The handsome young president with beautiful wife, delightful children, and the promise of a bright future, gone. Three years after his 1960 election, I still had the Kennedy pin, although the school binder with the red, white, and blue Kennedy bumper sticker gone, but in memory. Thus began for me the tumult of the 60s. Civil rights demonstrations had been going on in the South for several years, and four little girls were killed in a bomb blast at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, on September 15th of that year. 
the violence would only accelerate. Political assassinations, civil rights murders, racial strife, anti-war protests, and the war in Vietnam, with its 58,000 American deaths, would forever alter the American political discourse. The first school mass murder shooting spree, the University of Texas clock tower shooting, was three years into the future. August 1st, 1966, when a disaffected student and veteran named Charles Whitman took perch in a clock tower overlooking the campus and murdered 14 students, wounding 31 others, after earlier in the day murdering his wife and mother. Although Vietnam eventually ended with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords in 1973, the last U.S. service members to die there would not occur until April 29, 1975, when two Marines were killed in a rocket attack one day before Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam, fell to the North Vietnamese. From Walter Cronkite, the iconic CBS News anchorman, weeping on television announcing Kennedy's assassination, to President Barack Obama wiping tears from his eyes on nationwide television while speaking of the deaths of 20 school children and six adults at the Sandy Hook School Massacre, we have seen six decades of violence-saturated media. The litany goes on. Police murdered. Unarmed blacks killed by police. Innocent school children gunned down. Service members' bodies in flag-covered caskets delivered in gray planes to saluting soldiers. Flag-pen-wearing politicians and weeping families in America's never-ending wars. The violence didn't begin with the 60s. Cain and Abel, Robespierre, John Wilkes Booth, Hitler, Stalin, names drenched in blood, names known to those with the slightest grasp of history. How have the last six decades been any different? Television, the rise of immediacy, the stark images of a president shot before our very eyes, the images of broken and bleeding soldiers, the images of children, arms raised, fleeing from schools, brought into our very living rooms, and living, and now dying, color. I began that decade playing with toy soldiers in the black dirt of Illinois, blowing them up with accurately aimed clods of dirt. Summer afternoons spent riding bicycles at each other, pretending to be fighter pilots, firing machine guns from the wings of P-51 Mustangs, firing cap pistols quick-drawn from the Roy Rogers leather double holsters strapped to our sides all the while shooting bad guys, marauding Indians, or Nazis. The decade would end on a United States Air Force C-9A Nightingale as a 19-year-old enlisted airman, serving in the 375th Aeromedical Evacuation Wing, helping fly wounded service members to a hospital specializing in treating their wounds, or for those less seriously injured, one near their home. The planes, named in honor of Florence Nightingale, a British nurse who pioneered wartime medical treatment during the Crimean War in the mid-1800s. Growing up in the decade after World War II, turning 18 during the draft-fueled Vietnam War, and being of working-class origins, it was only natural that my brother and I, indeed all the neighborhood boys, played with toy soldiers, cap guns, and pretended to be fighter pilots on our battered single-speed bicycles. My brother, father, and I Served a total of 66 years in the American military. As Hank Williams Jr. sang, it's a family tradition. Mm -hmm.